Welcome to the Earth Keepers Podcast. This podcast is for people who seek new and better ways to love and care for the Earth. It's a podcast for anyone who is deeply concerned about the harm being done to the environment on a local and global level. It's a podcast that builds community and connection between people of like heart and mind, people who believe that Earth care should be integrated into every aspect of life, and for many in the Earth Keepers community, that includes our spiritual lives. In this episode, we'll be talking with Jimmy McGee, the CEO and president of the Impact Movement, an organization whose primary focus it is to help develop students of African descent into leaders who impact the world for good. Part of that process involves helping students to become agents of social and environmental justice, whatever their vocations might be. Most of the decisions that are transformative in low to moderate income neighborhoods and communities are not made by the residents. They're made by other people in other neighborhoods and in City Hall and other parts. Therefore, we need black students to be residents of these communities, but we need black students to be social engineers in City Hall and in other communities that make decisions that continue to maintain and impact environmental justice issues in some communities. Welcome friends. To the Earth Keepers podcast. Well, welcome, Jimmy, to the podcast. Perhaps you can help listeners understand who you are, what you do, by talking about what you do in a typical day. My name is Jimmy McGee. I work for the Impact Movement, and it's important for me to articulate that Impact is a national nonprofit, 501c3, that serves college students, particularly targeting Black students on the various educational institutions in our country, i.e. primarily white institutions like Seattle University or the University of California, Irvine, primary black institutions like Chicago State Universities, and then finally historical black colleges and universities. We're in all of those institutions. A typical day, since I'm the CEO president, I am mitigating a variety of content and supervisory and influence of how this organization engages this particular population we're with, and that's Black students. I had one of our Black students who attended the church and says, I just disagree that it impacts existence. Why are they here only to serve Black students? And I want to answer this in two different ways. The first thing is when I took this job seven years ago in three days, January 9th, 2015, we had 22 million college students in the country. And of that 22 million, 14.9% were black. And I started looking at all the organizations like our own, university, navigators, crew, you name them. These are interdenominational nonprofits. I accumulated all of their data to discover that we were only serving 7,300 black students in the entire country. 14.9% of that 22 million is 3 million 154,000. We weren't even getting a one percentage point of black students in our reach. That's why we exist, because black students are invisible and underserved. The second thing of why we do it, we offer an alternative cultural experience that is not exclusive. So you can find Latinos and Asians and Native people in our spaces. My leader in Wisconsin, in her newsletter, 
articulated a Latino woman who was a part of Impact, who graduated and became a Latino leader in the country. So that tells us, or what we're trying to do, is create a space that encourages Black students to show up fully, not just in body, but in their culture, in their identity, wherever they are, and then we can embrace them. But it's also open to other people, including white students. That's important to say. Well, we're going to talk today about social justice and environmental justice, but I'm wondering if you could just talk a bit about what are some of the main social justice issues that your students face? So it's interesting you use the term social justice. So I find that very interesting as well. So quick story. When I took this job, we had an old mission statement, old vision statement, old values. And I felt like in order for me to have a longer tenure, I needed something that I could grasp as a CEO president that was owned by me and then facilitated by my staff. And so we went through this process of redesigning all these things. The values, we got the nine values. And my staff said, is insufficient. I said, these are very good values, what we got here. And they said, no, we need a, a value on justice, on social justice. And I told them, okay, they presented the argument, but I told them I don't do trends. So the trend now is social justice. I will do a value on justice because justice gives me longevity. It's not transcending and is connected to the text, the Holy Scriptures where we reference. And so we're involved heavily in justice. And let me tell you one of the most recent stories, and we got tons of them, but the most recent story happened in the fall. At Illinois State University, one of our largest chapters, there was a gentleman there. He was a native of, of normal Bloomington, Illinois. He had just graduated from University of Illinois in Champaign and was returning home. And he went missing. Our staff there and our students became very close to his family, specifically our, our staff. And she engaged the mother, Jelani, often. Finally, on one day, we gathered our impact chapter to go look for his body. Unfortunately, on the day that we went, the authorities found a body but did not disclose that to us until the end of the day. We later discovered four weeks later that that body they found was his. Similar to Emmett Till's body, mutilated, disturbed, disrespected. And we had to go through the processes of our staff and students going through the trauma of mourning his death. But what we would, what we try to do when justice issues, we have a hypothesis within our organization that if we don't sensitize our students to look at marginalization, and to look at justice issues while they're undergrads in college, then we have very little hope that they're going to care about these issues upon graduation. So we see justice values as a part of our organization. It's not just something as maybe an undergrad experience, but it has a trajectory for the next 10 to 20, 30 years for our students to continually care about issues that we think are pertinent to them. So there are others who agree with you that in some ways the dichotomy, the splitting up of justice into social justice and environmental justice these days is artificial. In fact, because the issues are so intertwined oftentimes, it could be 
not helpful to speak of them in different terms. I'm wondering what is your take on that? When you think about environmental justice and then other kinds of justice, do you actually see that there's any purpose to separating them for the sake of conversation? You know, it's very hard to say that. So when we say social justice, I am not upset about vernacular. People use language that they feel the most comfortable with. Give you a good example. I never use the term racial reconciliation. That just doesn't fit within my framework of how to deal with issues of race. But that doesn't mean I'm disrespectful for folk who use it. And I think that's the case when I say social justice versus justice. Now, in terms of environmental justice, now this is a different conversation. It's not vernacular now. I think I look at it as an undergrad in sociology and a master's in anthropology. I look at sociology as an umbrella discipline. And then under the umbrella discipline is various ways to focus on issues. And I see justice as an overarching one. And I see articulating environmental justice as a very, very important aspect to pursue. Unfortunately, in today's world, most people look at the extremes and they don't look at the normal day-to-day things. Give you a good example. Flint, Michigan, which still doesn't have clean water. And we're talking years. We're not talking about months. We're talking about the past decade that the generations of people's body from drinking that tainted water is not only filled with cancer. We're talking about brain development. We're talking about other ways that further disadvantages their existence in our society. But most people look at that as an extreme. But if anyone would ever look at or read, give you a good example of The Some of Us by Heather McGee, she can articulate very well in one of her chapters that environmental justice is a perpetual issue for people of color around this country. That they, they live where trash dumps and toxic chemicals are being poured there on an ongoing basis and other issues of environmental justice that are present with us, but they're so normalized, they're so everyday occurrence that people dismiss it and say, oh, that's just the way life is. To me, I think that's the cruelty of it, that we've made environmental justice just a normal consequence of living. And that's my problem. And that's why I think it's very important for us to engage the issue of environmental justice, because I think that's important. So you raise a really interesting question. Certainly, I think if you say, take your gauge from national media, environmental justice issues tend to be downplayed if they're mentioned at all. But it makes me wonder, in terms of the people who have to suffer the environmental justice issues, is there that desensitization in their lives as well? I mean, are there pressures that keep them even from from seeing the injustices that they have to live with that, that actually cost them and their lives? It is so present there and it's so evil that they're normalized by it. So I'm giving you a good example. For many, many years, I was the executive director or the director of the Atlanta Urban Project. I was with a different campus ministry, but I recruited students to live in low to moderate income neighborhoods. And they had to live there, not just serve the population of kids there, but they had to live there, build friends with them there. And then what I did for the first two weeks, I gave each of them, I think around $17.59 per person, and they had to eat, 
they had to travel and wash their clothes with that money per per week. And they had to figure out how to do that. Well, then they discovered that when they went to the grocery stores, see, this is a very important part of environmental justice, I would argue. They went to the grocery store. It wasn't fresh fruit. It wasn't fresh meat. It wasn't fresh goods to eat. It was filled with garbage. And you say, well, Jimmy, is that, a, is that an environmental issue? Well, yeah, it is. Because what that means is that the children's brains can develop. And then they get addicted to sugar and other carbohydrates in their body instead of fresh foods and vegetables to grow. And then what that also means is that this becomes normal for them, for their palate. So to introduce foods that are more healthy, even just today, I had a mixed fruit bowl for breakfast, bananas, strawberry, and blueberries. Kids in those communities don't. And I can tell you this. I want you to hear me for us. I watched those kids grow up. I saw little children between ages five and seven, when their second adult teeth were coming in, they were black. They were rotten. I saw swollen stomachs. So I'm just telling you, it's so normalized for the participants of those communities that they don't know that there's other options and way to live. I'm wondering if you could tell us a bit more about what you have seen in terms of environmental justice, because, you know, as we're pointing out, these these issues tend to be ignored, especially if there are bigger, louder issues to pay attention to. What other costs do you see to, say, people of color when it comes to environmental issues? I think another part of the frame is not just the food, it's the idea of how they are locked in that locality. So they don't even risk being adventurous to see how other people live throughout a metropolitan area. I'm going to give you two examples. The first example is that I actually moved into the neighborhood that we had those urban projects. Well, there's a prominent school over here called Martin Luther King Middle School. Well, when we first moved over here, it had no windows. The entire school was cement blocks. I want you to think about that. I want you to think about going to school every day and there's four walls around you and you can't see outside. I want you to think about what that does for your psyche, what that does when you don't even have a healthy dose of vitamin D, but the noise is encapsulated. Well, since the area has been gentrified, the school has been reimagined. It's full of windows all around. The population has shifted. That wasn't fair. That wasn't fair at all to those kids, not those black kids, not how that interfered with their personal growth, because education is not just about a teacher communicating to you. It's about the environment where the learning occurs. That's environmental injustice to me. I think the second piece that I thought was very, very interesting about this is that I once would take these kids to petting zoos. There was a, a place at, at that time at Stone Mountain that had beavers and fox and all kinds of animals. And they had squirrels that would come up to people and even deer that would come up and eat right out of your hand. And I saw that these kids never had an experience like this in their lives. To me, that's environmental injustice too. Environmental injustice is not just about the waste and the lack of resources 
It's also the lack of imagination for people not to imagine living in conditions different than what they're nurtured in. I think that's the issue that we're having now. Most of the decisions that are transformative in low to moderate income neighborhoods and communities are not made by the residents. They're made by other people in other neighborhoods and in city hall and other parts. Therefore, we need black students to be residents of these communities, but we need black students to be social engineers in city hall and in other communities that make decisions that continue to maintain and impact environmental justice issues in some communities. So you've been at your work long enough that you're able to see the impact of the work. Oh, absolutely. You know, it's interesting. During our urban project, we had a number of students, black and white. And this one white guy was really overcome about the foster care program. He went and became a pastor and started a foster care program in a low to moderate income neighborhood in Florida and championed it for his church. So what he realized, it wasn't that parents in low to moderate income don't desire to be good parents, but they inherited systems that perpetuate our underclass status. That's one person I can identify. A second person I can identify, she's a graduate of a HBCU, went on to Columbia to get a PhD. She now lives in Milwaukee, which is one of the most segregated cities and r- racially polarized cities in the entire country, to work in the metropolitan area of Milwaukee to advocate for the educational well-being of kids in those neighborhoods who are trapped, who don't get access out. I think that's important to see. There's a guy named Ryan Haygood. Now, he's not a direct influence of me, but he is an alumni of our organization. He graduated, went to law school, later became a part of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, but most recently over the last six years is the president over the Institute for Social Justice in New Jersey for the whole state. And he deals with his issues of environmental justice, of voting rights, of education. I can identify those three are people who are proponents of this. And if you give me some time to reflect on it, I can keep going. We let some of our listeners ask questions, give us questions for future speakers. And you're raising an issue that I think Casey, one of our listeners, raised as well. And her question for you is, where do you find your hope? Because you're facing the cost of injustice in people's lives on a daily basis, how do you actually bear the weight of it? How do you stay encouraged to keep pressing on in light of the challenges? Well, I can tell you where my hope lies. My hope lies in history. Because one of the things I would say fascinating, and I'm going to say it in two different ways, we are a Christian organization. And I argue today that the Bible, if it's anything, it's a historical book. It gives me a way to say how God interacted with other people gives me insight on how he would interact with me. That's one aspect. The other aspect that I look at, I look at the history of Black people that preceded me. Because what I've discovered is that there's a whole generation, multiple generations of Black people who endured slavery and Jim Crow that gives me multiple influences of how to sustain. And so if they've passed away, I find their books. I find their stories. I would say most notably, 
One person died July 17th, 2020. He died just a few weeks before he was going to turn 96. I met him when he was 70. His name was Dr. C.T. Vivian. He was a lieutenant of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Most people, if they ever, they probably never have seen Eyes on the Prize. He's arguing with Sheriff Jim Clark to let black people come into the court office to register to vote. And Sheriff Clark hits him in his mouth and he's he's rebuffing back to the, the sheriff to say, you should not hold this from these people and his lips are bleeding. When I met him at 70 years old, I said, why is this man still engaged in these justice issues? Should he not retire? Shouldn't he just be on a speaking tour? And I discovered that his energy, his mind, his appetite to grow had not stopped. He was just insatiable about growing as much as he was when he was younger. And I said, if this dude can do this now, I can do this for the rest of my life. And so I find hope in him. There's another book I'm going to read. I got too many books now around me. And they're not all black people. There are some white. I just got a book the other day written by John Stott, who I had happened to meet before he passed. He wrote a book called Between Two Worlds. And he talks about the negotiation for Christian people to speak to this world, being fully engaged with the issues like environmental justice, and then looking into the scripture and said, does it address these issues? And that's where my hope comes. So I have to look at the past. So Sankofa is an image that I got from West Africa. And what it says is, you have to fetch back from your past so you can know your future. And I would argue, if there was ever an injustice, it was the way that the educational system has erased the legacy of the contributions of Black and other people of color in this country. The ideas of how they made this country strong and powerful and democratic, and also leveraged it to build wealth into this nation. And so what my job is, is to be a detective, to uncover it, find it, nurture it, celebrate it, and give it back to my students. That's how I stay encouraged. There are listeners to this podcast from all over the world and many different cultures. So what would you say to them as they're listening to us talk about these issues? What, what would be the takeaways potentially for them? First takeaway is resolve. I think what we don't have of a number of people who have resolved to engage this issue for the long-term effects of it versus the short-term notoriety or the short-term thrill. The saying, I did it, it's on my resume, I'm done, and I can move on. We need people who have resolve, resolve that lasts a lifetime. I think of none other than people like Dave Dennis and Diane Nash. These were people who were college students who abandoned their academic careers to engage in issues of injustice. And particularly in Diane Nash case, after she helped desegregate the lunch counters in Nashville, she took on the mantle of being a freedom writer after the Kennedy administration seemingly had put a halt to the freedom rides because people were getting hurt. And on this particular occasion, Robert Kennedy, the attorney general, sent one of his agents down to Alabama to stop the freedom rides. And he got wind 
that Diane Nash and a number of students from Fisk and Tennessee State were on their way down to continue the Freedom Rides on. And this is what they said to this guy who was working for the Attorney General, Robert Kennedy. And he says, who the hell is Diane Nash? And he called up Diane Nash and tried to convince her, don't come down here. We just stopped this Freedom Rides. We've got people who've been physically harmed, but somebody's going to die in this. And we don't want anybody to die young lady. Now, she's 20 years of age. She tells this guy over the phone and says, listen, here's the thing that you need to understand. Last night, all of us here at the university met with attorneys to sign our last will and testament. We know somebody's going to die and we're willing to die. And we just withdrawn from school to pursue this issue. After life was over, Dave Dennis, who was also a part of Freedom Summer, became an attorney. Bob Moses became a part of the Algebra Project. He left last year. He died last year. All of these people, this resolve was not a short-term phase of their lives, but this is something that happened for the rest of their days. How long is your resolve? Can you stay in this when environmental justice cease to be a trend, cease to be a part of the conversation, Can you have resolve to be a part of this issue even when it doesn't have the notoriety it deserves? That's what I would argue first. Do you have this kind of reserve? The second thing I would say is, what's your appetite to grow? Just because you're passionate about the issue doesn't mean that you know everything there is about the issue. I was passionate 30 years ago when I started working with college students, and I promise you to this day, I am learning things today that I didn't know 20 or 30 years ago. And quite frankly, I don't think I was mature enough to engage it. But I'm discovering now that I'm just reaching the cusp of my ignorance. Meaning like, I want to know where is your appetite to grow and to learn and to understand these issues. And then third is a two-pronged approach. Do you have peers that you engage with to keep you to sustain this? And do you have mentors to inspire you to replace them? Those are the things I would tell them. We've been in conversation with Jimmy McGee of the Impact Project. If you'd like to learn more about the work of Impact, be sure to check out the show notes for this episode on the podcast website. If you appreciate this podcast and want to help us expand its global reach, please share this episode with a friend. You can also show your support by subscribing. Just go to whatever platform you listen to podcasts on and hit the subscribe or follow button for the Earthkeepers podcast. Finally, it would be very helpful if you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. I'm Forrest Ginsley, your podcast host. Our executive producer is James Amadon. Our producer is Dave Ulfers. Forrest Reed is our editor and the creator of our original music. Our research assistant is Rochelle Nordman. And Jessalyn Gentry is our social media director. Thank you, friends, for listening. And please join us for our next conversation on the Earthkeepers podcast.